all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Lieutenant Dustin Picard of the NOAA Corps. This is the first time I think Veterans Radio has ever had the chance to interview somebody from the NOAA Corps. So Dustin, uh, Lieutenant, we're glad to have you. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, and I just want to thank you for inviting uh, the NOAA Corps. I'm a honored to be here and to, to talk to you and, and to your listeners. And I want to thank our veterans, too. Uh, you guys have paved the road for us, and, and I wouldn't be here in this seat if it, if it wasn't for all of our veterans. So, so thank you to you, sir, and thank you to our veterans listening. Well, I want to tell a few folks, we have a lot of Army guys listening, and they're going, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, what the hell does that mean? Well, sure. the Corps has the same uh, rank as the Navy. That is correct. Yep. So we have the same same ranks as the as pretty much all the seagoing services as the Navy and the Coast Guard. So a lieutenant is a railroad track uh, officer for those Army guys who uh, understand that, uh, that. Oh, that's a captain in my language or the mm-hmm. uh, Air Force guys. So we just kind of wanted to set up Lieutenant Picard um, a little bit about because people aren't familiar with the NOAA Corps. So why don't you start by telling us what the NOAA Corps is all about? Yeah, uh, great question to start us off, and it's a it's a very loaded question, so I'll, I'll do my best to, to steer us straight here. So the NOAA Corps is a uniform service. Uh, we are one of eight services now in the country. So you have your six armed services, and, and most people know the five, the six being the new Space Force, and then you have two uniform services, one being the U.S. Public Health Service, and then, of course, the NOAA Commission Corps being the eighth service there. Uh, we're extremely small. Um, we are currently about 335 officers strong, no enlisted corps, uh, but we have a uh, mandate to grow up to 500 now, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk to that here shortly. But um, we, we kind of are at the intersection of science and service. So unlike the other services, our missions are completely environmentally and science-based, and, and that's where all of our funding comes from. 
In fact, we fall under NOAA, which is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, uh, and that falls under the Department of Commerce. So unlike our, our uh, other services, we are not a part of DOD, we're actually part of DOC. Um, and so all of our missions and all of our funding comes, comes from there. And, and uh, that, that's kind of where we find ourselves. Uh, I mentioned we are environmentally and, and uh, science at the intersection of environmental and, and, and science and, and service. So uh, we do have two distinct um, career paths in the Corps, uh, the maritime side of the house as, as well as the aviation side of the house. So uh, I'd say it's about a 70-30 split. 70% of us are, are mariners and maritime based and, and ship driving, small boat, diving, those kind of disciplines. Where the other 30% are, are aviators, so pilots or navigators um, flying, flying our aircraft. And I think some folks would uh, remember the uh, public health service as a uniform service because they see in this time of COVID, they've seen the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the Surgeon General who heads up the United States Public Health Service on TV a lot. Um, one doesn't see the head of the NOAA Corps on TV. Uh, it's a, an uh, admiral position, as I understand it. That is correct. And uh, but n- the NOAA Corps has a, a long history. It's not something new just because you just heard about it. Tell us a little bit about the uh, history of the NOAA Corps. Yeah, it's a really rich history. So I'll try to be pretty brief and succinct with it. Uh, we can actually trace our lineage lineage back to the early 1800s, 1807, in fact. And we started off as the uh, the Coast Survey and. At the time, we were mandated to, to survey the coastlines and all the navigable waters of, of what was then the United States, and, or you know, much smaller than it is now, but the coastline that we had. And we worked hand in hand with the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy to get our job done. Um, fast forward to the Civil War, and I should say that the Coast Survey, we were, we were civilian federal employees. We were not recognized as a, as a uniformed service at this time. Um, fast forward to the Civil War, uh, we were kind of thrust right into it, just like a lot of, a lot of individuals were during that time. And we mostly served on the union side of things um, as mappers, cartographers, and in all theaters of the war, of the war as well. Um, so we kind of started to, to really make a name for ourselves and assimilate into the services at that point, um, wearing uniforms with, with the other union um, service members as well. Uh, fast forward to, um, you know, after the Civil War and what we call the pre-World War I years, uh, we started to get more and more funding, and um, as the U.S. was growing, and so was our territories, we started to get more missions, um, you know, kind of uh, remote. Uh, so we, we were deployed out to Alaska, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, you know, Hawaii, just kind of making a name for ourselves and, and charting and mapping these new areas that were coming online. In World War II, um, we were uh, a service was created, and we kind of transformed into the Coast and Geodetic Survey. Um, and we were simulated um, into all the services. Um, so from the Navy, the Marine Corps, our officers served in, in one or, or more of these, these serv- um, branches, I should say, uh, during, during the time of the war. Uh, we served as artillery uh, officers, mine lane officers, troop transport navigators, intelligence officers. We pretty much brought our skill set to these services and served wherever they needed us. Following World War One, um, we reverted back to our role, you know, kind of peaceful surveyors, chart makers of the nation, focusing more on navigable waterways and commerce and that kind of stuff. Uh, and we spent a year practicing and, and refining the skill set. Uh, our missions kind of started to increase a little bit to land surveying uh, and started taking a look more at our, our airways charting and, and, and um, coastal mapping as well as oceanography. So we started to expand some of our disciplines and, and not so much just on 
on bathymetric surveys and nautical charting, but but kind of growing into into the mold that we are now. Um, during World War II, just like World War One, um, many of our individuals were assimilated into the other service as well. Uh, over half of our forces, in fact, um, and we were we were deployed all over in, in all theaters of the war. Um, again, we served as hydrographers, amphibious engineers, beach masters, and recon surveyors. Uh, we also introduced uh, and started to, to bring along aeronautical charting um, and, and provided a plethora of technical positions through the services as well. Uh, in fact, the USS Pathfinder, which was a, at the time a coast and geodetic ship, was taken over by the Navy. And Admiral Chester Nimitz is quoted as saying, the road to Tokyo was paved with Pathfinder charts. And this was not uncommon for our ships to be taken over by the other services. Uh, they would often sail ahead of of um, of the ship, of the warships, basically, to, to chart and survey and, and provide uh, recon um, back, to, back to the fleet as they advanced. Um, after World War II, uh, we, we started to return to normal routines and, and all was, was pretty normal for about 30 years. And then in the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, environmental focus kind of took over the nation. And there was a, quite a bit of reorganization of government agencies, especially on the science side of things. And that's where NOAA, uh, what we presently know as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, was created. And truly thereafter, the NOAA Corps came into existence as well. And so basically from, from then on, that's from the early 1970s to where we see today, that's, that's how we know, that's what we know as, as the NOAA Corps. Um, and, and yeah, that's pretty much our history. Well, that's, it's 50 years now that uh, the NOAA Corps has been called that. But as you say, it has this rich history of being the country's uh, chart makers and mappers. And this was all before uh, satellite, all before GPS. Uh, every time you, somebody went into a new territory, hey, take Guam, take the Philippines, somebody had to go figure out the waterways and where it was safe and where it wasn't to take ships and at what depth. So it's a very fascinating history. And um, I, again, because it's so small, it's easy to overlook it. So I wanted to start there for our list veteran radio listeners. And we're talking to Lieutenant Dustin Picard, who's with NOAA Corps. Dustin, tell us a little bit about today's NOAA Corps in terms of the equipment that it has at its disposal. You mentioned it's sort of 70% sea service, 30% air service. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, great question. So um, on the maritime side of the house, we currently have 15 ships in operation. Um, and some of them, the, the classes are all different. Um, some of them were built in the 1950s or rather old, and, and some of them are, are, are brand spanking new. Uh, we've got some ships that have sailed in the Navy and came over to our hands. So some of our listeners might be uh, familiar with the Tiegos class vessels. Uh, we've got three or four of those in our fleet currently. Um, and we've got two new builds coming online. Um, they're both being built down in Louisiana right now and, and anticipated those to be online in 2024 and 2025. So we'll be shortly going back up to 17 ships for our fleet. And these ships are, are home ported all over the country. We've got one out in Hawaii, a couple in Alaska, the West Coast in Oregon, California, uh, Gulf of Mexico. We've got three out of, out of Mississippi and Pascagoula. Uh, and then out east on the, on the Atlantic seaboard, we've got uh, ships in Charleston, Norfolk, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire as well. So we're strategically located throughout as far as our, our maritime um, side of the house is concerned. For our aircraft, we have uh, nine aircraft currently. Uh, we have P3s, uh, Twin Otters, and Gulf Streams. And all these aircraft do a variety of missions, which I'm happy to talk about. 
Um, yeah, that's some of uh, our, our fleet, both on the, the maritime and the aviation side of things. Well, in last year's National Defense Act of 2020 the, and that the president signed, there, there were a lot of dollars and authorizations that were directed to the NOCOR, which is allowing you to move the number of officers up to 500, which is a big step up from, from where you were at about 335. Um, Absolutely. How how will those additional officers and as you pointed out earlier this the NOAA Corps is just officers there's no enlisted how will those mm-hmm. officers be integrated in over kind of what period of time and uh, what what uh, what's the core thinking about in this uh, big uh, surge of uh, personnel yeah great question I think uh, I think we're still trying to answer that question ourselves to be completely honest with you but it's um, let me start by saying it's, it's never been a better time to be part of the of the core just for the recognition of, of the work that we do from Congress. And, and, and that is never more evident by the fact that they, you know, they, they have decided to, they have passed the NOAA core reauthorization bill, which you referred to in, in December and it decided to increase our number. So um, before December of last year, we were uh, congressionally mandated to 321 officers. And as you mentioned, this new bill that came through uh, bumped our numbers up to 500. So it's going to be a slow roll. Um, It's not going to be, you know, 200 additional officers within a year. That's just not possible or feasible. Um, But we're going to slowly increase our our, our recruitment classes. Um, You know, on average, it's about 10 or so per class. So that might be bumped up to to 15 or so. So we'll be we'll be uh, increasing our numbers there. And then we're going to look to inter-service transfers, which we we already heavily rely on, especially on the aviation side of things. Um, so inter-service transfers from the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, especially pilots and navigators, that is a nice pipeline that we have it, that comes in, especially at the 0304, the, the lieutenant, lieutenant commander um, ranks. And so we expect that to continue, but also probably increasing on the maritime side as, as well, because um, as you can imagine, we don't want to increase all 200 officers at the ensign level, you know, we need to increase our numbers uh, across the, the ranks and, and not just be a bottom heavy uh, approach. Um, as far as what we're going to do with all these new personnel coming in, well, I think I think that's that's still to be determined. Um, as I mentioned before, we've got kind of two sides of our house, the maritime and the, the aviation side. Um, but there's a lot of talk about um, growing our unmanned systems program. And I think we're going to see uh, a focus and a surge in officers and recruiting in, in that kind of realm and, and that discipline and that background, because let's face it, we all know it, that is the future uh, of not only DOD, but but also of our missions too. You know, these unmanned systems can go places a lot quicker, a lot cheaper, and a lot easier and safer than, than we can uh, on our current platform. So currently standing up the unmanned systems um, program within the NOCOR, and I expect to, to see that um, be supported by, by the REOF bill. Uh, additionally, we, we have talked about, um, you know, using this increase in officers to uh, to help strengthen our administrative capabilities as well. Currently, we re- rely on civilian federal employees, basically NOAA full-time federal employees to support our missions from, from a land-based uh, side of things, from administrative side of things. So whether that be HR or logistics or operations, um, you know, we, we, we have civilians that we work with con- consistently and continually, and they do a fantastic job. But we're looking at potentially uh, creating some billets uh, for officers. So there might be uh, a career track for that rather than, you know, being operational on the aviation side of the house or maritime side of the house. Um, and additionally, on the same vein is, is looking at officers who, who bring like a political expertise to the game. Um, it's, it's very important for us to, to work with our, our partners, uh, our congressional partners for 
visibility, viability for funding, that kind of stuff. And so bringing in officers who have a, a, a good political background, uh, they might be able to, to kind of help help us in that in that realm and help leverage and, and promote the NOAA Corps uh, to continue to further increase uh, our missions, increase our funding. So I think you're going to see that. I think uh, to answer your question twofold, it's going to take a little while to to kind of grow these numbers and we're going to do it slowly because we need to, We also need to, to grow our, our, shore, our shoreside support as well. Um, and then also, I think you're going to look at uh, different career tracks that will be available for officers rather than just maritime and, and aviation. Well, Lieutenant, uh, you're currently in a recruiting billet, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because historically NOAA's had uh, officer tr- basic officer training classes maybe every year, maybe every other year, depending on staffing needs. Um, and it recruits out of uh, colleges and universities because they're all officers and, the, and there's this heavy reliance on um, science and technology. So what's the recruiting pitch? Uh, if, you're, if you're somebody uh, or know somebody in that uh, college realm getting out uh, after a year or two, um, why should they consider the NOAA Corps? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and honestly, I'll say this job recruits for itself just because of the, the nature of what we do. As I mentioned, we're at the intersection of science and service. So we heavily recruit out of STEM programs across the country. And we, we specifically target, you know, marine strong marine science programs, strong atmospheric science programs, uh, aviation programs, um, folks who, and then of course the maritime schools as well, like Mass Maritime, Maine Maritime, Kings Point, um, Texas A&M, Galveston. These programs are, are and, and, and Cal Maritime as well. These programs are great feeder programs for us because, you know, these students come in with an inclination to serve as it is already, or they come with an inclination in science, and then they, they hear about the core, and it's the opportunity for them to kind of blend both of those interests and do something for their career that they can, you know, uh, answer the calling to serve, but also do something for the environment, for their planet, for the nation, and for the world as well. So I think for, for those reasons, it's a very attractive career opportunity. Not to mention the fact that it's full of adventure. I mean, you get to move every two or three years, just like any other service. But the nature of our assignments, you know, our deployments are, are you know, bring you to some really cool, uh, really cool places, geographically speaking, opportunity for travel, opportunity to, to mingle and interact with with some of the, the cutting edge scientists in, in marine biology, oceanography, um, uh, atmospheric sciences, whatever maybe you know, you'll be working hand in hand with these with these scientists to kind of facilitate their operations and their missions, and that's a, extremely exciting. And I can't I can't not mention the fact that our benefits uh, program is is equivalent to what you would see in the other services as well. So of course, the twenty year retirement with pensions available, medical Medicare, healthcare, all that's uh, excuse me, medical and health uh, healthcare. Uh, that's the same across the board. Access to bases and, and medical treatment or military treatment facilities. Uh, of course, the Veterans Affair um, uh, benefits as well, and a GI Bill, all that's available to our officers as well. So for someone who's who's inclined to serve, but maybe has more of a science background, or maybe has a science background, but is looking for something more operationally based or something more adventurous than you know, maybe sitting in a lab or doing research, this is the perfect career for them. And like I said, I, I think the career really speaks for itself, and it makes my job as a recruiter that much easier. Well, great pitch. It does make it does make it easier. Um, it, I'm glad you pointed out that uh, NOAA Corps officers are by law considered veterans of of service and have access to the VA benefits uh, that uh, flow with that. Uh, but also, NOAA Corps officers can be militarized by the president of the United States under statutory provisions at certain times of war. 
Um, so, you know, it, uh, we, we kind of have a better understanding of what the Coast Guard does and how they can get militarized. Well, the NOAA Corps can do the same thing. And you told us earlier how they got integrated into the Naval Service and others uh, in World War I, World War II. So, um, you, you, t- you touched that, sir. Go, go ahead. Uh, and then we're going to move on to, I want to move transition to the missions. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to speak quickly to that, um, you, you mentioned about the Coast Guard being assimilated into the other services. And, and that was one of the biggest reasons why we, we moved our, our basic officer training class, BOTSI, to the Coast Guard um, OCS program at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. Previous to 2012, it was at Kings Point uh, Maritime. It was a great program focused you know, predominantly on, on uh, maritime training and that kind of stuff. We moved it in 2012 to simulate fully with the U.S. Coast Guard OCS program. Um, because those two services, the Coast Guard and ourselves, we have so much in common between missions and, and what we do and how we serve the nation that it was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout-out to our sister service, the U.S. Coast Guard, and all that they do as far as partnerships and promoting the NOAA Corps as well. Well, that's great. And and I actually went through a, a basic training uh, program uh, number 57 back in October of 1976, and we did it at Kings Point, uh, uh, which was the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. I didn't know when it transitioned over to um, the Coast Guard Academy, so I'm glad to hear uh, you give a date of, of 2012. It helps put it in perspective for me. Mm-hmm. Yes, w- one of the things that I wanted you to talk a little bit about, uh, Lieutenant, is Examples of the missions. So there's a fishery components, a survey component, a research component. We've talked a little bit about the number of planes, but maybe not as much what they do. So give us some examples of the types of missions these different components of the NOAA Corps are involved in. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And uh, let me start by describing how NOAA's kind of uh, organized. So NOAA's our parent agency. Within NOAA, we have six what we call line offices. And those line offices are, are best thought about as, as sub-agencies within NOAA. And they include the National Marine Fisheries Service, the National Ocean Service, the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research, the National Weather Service, the National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service, and finally, the National Marine and Aviation Operations. Um, so those six line offices all have different missions. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners, and yourself included, will recognize some of them. Uh, most predominantly, uh, National Ocean Service, the Fishery Service, and the Weather Service. They're the ones that are probably highlighted the most in, in day-to-day news. Um, so no Corps officers serve throughout all those line offices throughout their careers. And all these line offices have various missions that they um, and objectives that they need to get done and that they rely on the Corps to execute those missions. So, for example, uh, I've mentioned our, our fleet of 15 ships. They all fall under three different uh, classes. And so they could be a fisheries research ship, and they'll predominantly serve the National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, they could be an oceanographic research ship. They'll serve National Ocean Service. They'll so- service uh, Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. They'll even service NESDIS, which is the satellite or the weather service. Um, and then you've got your hydro- um, hydrographic survey vessels. And those are the ones that kind of take us back to our, our roots and our history. There's the, those are the ones that continue to do the nautical charting, nautical map- mapping, uh, that we, you know, we start started off doing in the early 1800s. Um, so the, some of the types of missions we might be doing. Um, so as a as a hydro- hydrographer, for example, you know, assigned to one of the hydro hydrographic vessels, you could be, you know, um, deployed to the somewhere in Alaska, for example, say Glacier Bay or or somewhere up there, 
And you could be spending the summer um, running hydrographic missions, mapping the seafloor, which will eventually turn into our nautical charts to map our our, our nation's waterways. It's it's actually pretty cool. You know, when I go to schools or universities to do a recruiting pitch, I have a, have a photo of a coast and geodetic survey uh, ship from 1897 mapping the same exact area of a, of a NOAA ship in 2013. And it's like a, a mirror image photo, just, you know, one's black and white and grainy and, and one's pretty clear. So it's really cool to see that that, that mission still exists, you know, 150 years later. Um, on the oceanographic side of things, you know, you could be doing anything from uh, ecosystem uh, mapping and assessment. So working uh, with our National Marine Sanctuaries program, doing dive operations. You could be working in remote areas of the Pacific or Equatorial uh, Atlantic, deploying uh, atmospheric and oceanographic buoys that line our equator. Uh, you could be doing uh, ROV missions and ocean exploration. So we've got one ship that's dedicated and it's, it's um, the nation's only ocean exploration vessel. Uh, so it goes out and it maps new areas with, with remotely operated vehicles, ROVs. Um, so those are kind of our, our catch-all vessels. They can, they're just multifaceted ships that can do a lot of different missions. And then finally, our, our fisheries vessels, they work predominantly for the National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, and what they do is they, they do stock assessment. So they go out and they look at uh, pr primarily commercial um, fisheries and, and they look at, you know, they might go ahead before a commercial season starts and they might take assessment of what the what the uh, health of that 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 uh, commercial fisheries looks like. Um, they'll also do a lot of marine mammal research and um, long term fisheries assessments. Uh, so what I mean by that is they do projects year in and year out the same time frame so they can get these data sets that are very consistent. And they can tell the health of that species, the health of that ecosystem, and use that to set legislation, to set policy when it comes to fisheries. So all of it kind of ties in that way. Um, on the other side of the house, the aircraft um, side of things, those those planes are, are a lot of them are, are multifaceted and they'll, they'll do a whole lot of missions. So again, uh, they'll work for various line offices in, in one way or another, but sometimes they might be doing uh, aerial marine, uh, marine mapping. So they might be doing coastal mapping. And where this comes to light is, is like right after a storm goes through or a natural emergency, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll deploy our, our aircraft to, to kind of do some some coastal mapping, aerial coastal mapping to get a, an idea of the extent of damage or, you know, how we can get first responders in. Uh, they might be doing marine mammal assessments. So just like our ships are, you know, on the ocean and, and, and kind of doing marine mammal assessments from above, we're using our aircraft to spot pods of, of, of whales and endangered species. So that way our scientists can kind of get to them. Uh, we might be doing snow surveys uh, in the Midwest in the winter. And what that does is, is we can use technology to kind of predict uh, how much um, how much snow melt we'll have in the spring. And that'll directly influence um, basically the return on investment for our farmers in the Midwest, because that, uh, you know, as that snow melt comes down, that'll directly in, in impact their their seasons, basically. And so you can kind of see why we're tied in the Department of Commerce in that sense, because a lot of our missions ultimately will will lead to um, legislation or, or, let, lend to, uh, or lead to funding that'll directly impact our nation's economy. It's um, really it's again, really cool stuff. I mean, you know, just hearing is, you yeah. just hearing you talk about all the potential missions uh, has got me jazzed up again, uh, and and uh, you know, making me remember why I joined up uh, back in the seventies. But um, I, I wanted I, to switch I will, to something here, though, uh, sure. I, before we want to run out of time, because I kind of want to talk about your career. Sure. I, sure. I, you know. Uh, we're, we're talking to Lieutenant Dustin Picard. Um, you might have thought we were talking to Dirk Pick, 
pit of uh, Numa of Clive Cussler fame. Maybe you know if you if you read uh, his stories, that'll uh, that'll ring true for you. But Dustin, you know, as you came out of the University of Maryland in 2013, you had a, an interesting uh, background in terms of what you studied. Um, but but tell us a little bit about why why you joined NOAA and uh, some of the assignments that you've had uh, uh, over the last uh, what's this make it about eight years now? That is correct. Yeah, my eight year anniversary was just this past Sunday, so timely um, interview time. But um, yeah, so as you mentioned, I I got my uh, bachelor's of science at the University of Maryland, and uh, coming out of college, my um, my my major was in like marine environmental science and policy. Um, and I had a minor in leadership studies. I grew up in a military family. My, my dad was a naval officer. My mom was an Air Force officer. So uh, service was instilled in me early. And coming out of the uh, University of Maryland, I was actually applying to Navy OCS program when I went to a career fair as a, as a, as a senior and saw a guy wearing khaki uniform standing in front of this really cool billboard with these awesome photos. And I was like, what is this? And got talking to him and and realized that this service existed and it, it kind of fit the needs that I talked about earlier in science and service. That was my, my academic interest and that was my inclination to serve. And I was like, man, this is perfect for me. So I started the application cycle and I got picked up for BOTC 122. So it kind of shows you uh, where, where we are coming from in our careers. <laughs> um, so I was BOTC 122 and I went to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy program um, in the fall of 2013. After getting through that program, um, my first ship assignment was on our flagship vessel, which is the NOAA ship Ron, Ronald H. Brown. Um, and that ship's home port out of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, however, during my two years aboard as a junior officer, I actually never saw a home port. It was uh, pr- predominantly deployed to the Pacific um, at the time. And we did a whole bevy of missions. Uh, I saw a lot of different countries, too. As the flagship, we, we tend to bring it internationally and and kind of show it off and, and help out other governments as well. But we spent a lot of time uh, servicing um, our uh, atmospheric and oceanographic buoys that line the equator. We were doing a lot a lot of long-term um, climate change. And during that time, there was a really bad El Nino year. So we we're doing a lot of atmospheric studies. And again, this ship could had a duration of 35 to 40 days at sea. So we could get to some pretty remote spots uh, in the in the Pacific that our scientists could launch weather balloons or do atmospheric studies off. And, and we did partnerships with, with NASA and the Air Force as well uh, to kind of understand these um, climate effects that were happening at the time, especially as it relates to El Nino. So again, really cool assignment. Um, got to uh, talk about adventure, you know, going from places. I met the ship in Chile. I took it all the way up to the north slope of Alaska, you know, up, up north of Barrow. Uh, we went out as far, uh, I guess, depends how you look at it, east or west, but we were out in the um, American Samoa and the Marshall Islands. Um, so yeah, we went a little Tahiti. We went a little bit, a little bit of everywhere. So it was a really cool assignment in and out of Hawaii quite a bit. Oh, you had, good, um, you had good duty. All mine was up in Alaska and the USS discover home port, yeah. home, home port was Seattle, which was great. Uh, but, uh, all the time was up in Alaska and it was a, sure. you mentioned an ocean survey vessel. We did probably ran some of the same uh, lines you did on uh, uh, on the Brown, it sounds like, because we were up to Barrow as well and crossed yeah. the Dateline and all that sort of stuff. But, you you know, after a sea service uh, time at sea, uh, talk to us about your shore service. Yeah, so just like other uh, services, we rotate. So after two years of junior officer, uh, three years on a land assignment, 
where I was a uh, vessel operations coordinator for an 84-foot research vessel down in Galveston, Texas. And predominantly, we, we worked for a National Marine Sanctuary, um, which think about it like an underwater national park. And in my role, I basically oversaw everything to do with that with that, with that research vessel. So whether it came to uh, managing a crew of four, to uh, you know budget, um, maintenance, scheduling, logistics, all that kind of stuff kind of ran through me. But, you know, I was also very operational as well. So I got out pretty frequently. We would do about 60 to 90 days offshore per year. And I got out pretty frequently as as a crew member. So either as a captain or, you know, one of the deckhands uh, just to kind of help out and, and, and keep my skills up. Or I would go out as a research diver. And that's what I really love to do, too. So I was able to kind of help out the science team that we worked for, uh, do research diving, scientific diving. And it was it was really a dream job. So. I, uh, I did that for three years and then rotated back out to my second sea assignment. And uh, just like other services, as you you know progress through your career, you you, you promote through the ranks, you're expected to, to take on more responsibility and increase your level of responsibility on the ships as well. So I was the operations officer aboard the NOAA ship Gordon Gunter, which was a fisheries research vessel out of Pascagoula, Mississippi. So um, shot over to, on I-10 there, just uh, just east to, to Pascagoula, and we lived there for two years. Um, and in that role, we, we predominantly did marine mammal projects um, and and uh, like marine ecosystem assessment for for fisheries. So um, did, a, did a little bit of trawling missions, but but mostly just marine mammal observations. Uh, that job was really unique. A lot of our operation uh, operational footprint was in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, which can be some some pretty tricky ship driving, especially with all the rigs and the shrimp boats out there. Uh, and we worked uh, on the Atlantic seaboard from, you know, from Key West, Florida, all the way to Nova Scotia. So um, took me far and wide, and, and but it was, a, it was a really incredible assignment getting to work for the fishery service and kind of learning how they operate and they do business. And then um, after I finished those two years up, uh, just this past uh, uh, May, um, my family and I PCSed up here to uh, Washington, D.C. area where NOAA is actually uh, headquartered. And so I work now in the uh, our commission personnel center um, as a recruiting officer. So uh, my job is to to kind of recruit and mentor and retain the the future uh, officers of the NOAA Corps. And really happy to be here. Really enjoy education and, and mentorship. And so it's it's kind of a perfect fit for me. And uh, looking forward to the next three years here. Well, I think it's a great uh, opportunity for you to also see how things work back at headquarters. Um, Absolutely. I recently talked to a uh, vice admiral uh, from the Coast Guard who said when she got uh, off ship and was sent to headquarters, she went kicking and screaming the whole way, only to find yeah. out it was probably the best assignment she got because she got exposed to all that stuff you don't get exposed to elsewhere. So we hope, uh, Lieutenant uh, Dustin Picard, that you soak up all that additional training and information and experience uh, while you're back in headquarters it'll make you a better officer down the road well i appreciate that and i couldn't agree more it's been a it's been a blessing in disguise in that sense just because the the amount of knowledge and understanding of how our organization works just being here for a short three or four months has been awesome and i look forward to learning more over the next three years well, we appreciate you taking some time today. Uh, we took a little more than we said we would from you, uh, t- but That's it was okay. our first opportunity to talk to somebody from the uh, NOAA Corps about uh, what you guys are doing today. And I and I let me back up to this because I made a note earlier and I forgot to work it in. And I just said you guys. Um, the NOAA Corps has a uh, significant number of women involved, and it has uh, right from the get-go uh, back in the early 70s. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the diversity of the Corps? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so as you mentioned, yeah, our numbers are great as far as male and female um, demographics. We've got about a 50-50 split 
And uh, just recently, one of our classes that came through Botsy was like predominantly female uh, versus male. The current class is about 11 altogether, uh, five female, six male. So kind of putting to picture of, of where we stand there. And I think that just speaks to the, the nature of the mission and the, the nature of the career in itself. You know, we have really high ret uh, retention rates as well. Uh, people love what they do in this core. And that's a common in this job, I should say. And that's a common thread throughout the core. And it really helps retain people and uh, it keeps people coming back to work each and every day motivated. Lieutenant Dustin Picard, we appreciate the time you've given Veterans Radio today and the service that you're giving to the country through the NOAA Corps. Well, I want to, again, say thank you for having us. And uh, again, thank you to our veterans who have paved the way. Um, I will just say, if, if for those who are looking for more information, you know, just a quick Google search of NOAA Corps will bring it to our website. And for those who might have prospective applicants that want to apply, you can find our application link on there as well. And uh, for those on social media, we have an Instagram account, NOAA Corps, as well as a LinkedIn, NOAA Commission Corps. So feel free to check us out on any of those accounts and you can learn more about us. Uh, and we are very active in all of them. So we'll, you know, we'll be sharing information, photos, videos, whatever you, whatever we're doing, we'll, we'll, we'll blast it out on our, our social media and our, our websites as well. Yeah, go look at their Facebook page uh, for the NOAA Corps. You'll, uh, you'll get some great feeds and some great uh, action shots and some beautiful places around the world. So we'd encourage Absolutely. that as well. Dustin, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you again, and have a great rest of your day. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fawson. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our... National sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, Eisenhower Center, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed. <laughs>